Welcome to Manufacturing Success, a podcast presented by the Fisher and Phillips Manufacturing Industry Practice Group. My name is Mike Carew. I'm a partner in the Columbia, South Carolina office of Fisher and Phillips, and I'm a member of the Fisher and Phillips Manufacturing Industry Practice Group, and most of my work involves representing manufacturers. Let's get started with this episode of Manufacturing Success. For our conversation today, we will focus on another important labor topic, uh, specifically the efforts that are underway to eliminate or restrict employers in their ability to communicate, have meetings, have discussions with their employees during uh, organizing drives. So for this topic, my guest today is Steve Bernstein. Steve is the regional managing partner for the Fisher Phillips office in Tampa, Florida. And importantly, Steve is also one of our co-chairs for the Fisher and Phillips labor law practice. I can personally tell you that Steve is someone I regularly reach out to to address some of the more unique labor law issues that we have during organizing campaign. He's always a very valuable resource. So I think he's the perfect guest to have for this discussion today. Uh, with our topic. Well, Steve, welcome to Manufacturing Success. Thank you, Mike. It's good to be here. Uh, to get things started, I've done this on some other episodes. Just want to give everybody a little better idea of who Steve Bernstein is. I'm just going to go through and do a little people analytic analysis here. So I'm just going to give you some items to compare and you pick your preference and uh, we'll let the listeners decide what, what they've learned from this information. The beach or the mountains? I'm going to take the mountains since I live so close to the beach. Whiskey or beer? Whiskey all the way. Uh, bourbon or scotch? Bourbon. Steak or pasta? Steak. Cake or pie? Pie. Chocolate ice cream or vanilla ice cream? Vanilla. You prefer watching a movie or reading a book? Movie all the way. What's the last good movie you watched? Uh, a movie called Chung King Express. Very good. All right. Well, that's some very informative answers to those questions. I appreciate that. So let's get started with the uh, main topic and why we're here. Steve, as you know, I think by last April, the general counsel for the National Labor Relations Board, Jennifer Abruzio, she put out some thoughts, ideas, aspirations on some of the things that she was hoping the labor board could fix in her mind. And one of the things that uh, she came up with is concern she has over employers having communications with employees during organizing drives. And right out of the box, she framed the issue as her belief that mandatory meetings where employees are required to listen to an employer explain why a union is not in their best interest or why the company prefers that uh, operation be non-union is inherently unlawful. Um, so this brought up a lot of uh, uh, questions. Uh, she also said that she believes employees have a protected right not to participate in these type of meetings. So there are a lot of things that uh, uh, this brings up. So I just wanted to go over uh, this topic with you, because this is one of the most critical things that could ever come up in uh, the context of a manufacturing employer having union activity. So, Steve, what are your initial thoughts on 
what Abruzio put out last April. Well, thanks, Mike. From the moment this came down, uh, I think this struck me and a lot of us as a solution in search of a problem. And by that, I mean, you know, we've, we've scratched our heads uh, for the last several years, if not decades, over what this is really trying to solve, because most of us who practice in, in this area don't see the issue that she seems to see. And um, it appears to be um, an attempt to really solve a much more fundamental challenge for organized labor. Um, and that is, uh, you know, to, uh, to deal with the, the subject of educating the workforce, knowing that an educated workforce, all things being equal, typically will vote against union representation, at least in our experience. So there seems to be a larger objective here. And the goal ultimately is to bring back organized labor, uh, which is still struggling to make inroads. They've, they've had some, some wins this year, but they still hover close to about 6% of the private sector. And of course, you know, the only way to bring back organized labor is to add more dues paying members. So it's a mistake probably to view this in isolation. Um, the biggest issues that unions face these days um, you know, comes down to a variety of issues, but one is uh, their uh, inability to generate even more elections to stem the tide of decline. And so you know, the, the general counsel is out there really trying to, to shift the balance in favor of organized labor um, and uh, to reduce any, from her perspective, possibility of undue influence uh, in the course of a, a union campaign. Um, another example of this would be her uh, attempts to resurrect a case called Joy Silk, which was issued back in 1949 and is really uh, part of a broader effort uh, to remove the concept of secret ballots uh, as a, an obstacle to labor unions. And if the secret ballot votes are, are, are limited to the extent she would like or passed up entirely for a process called card check, which is that approach, um, unions will still run into issues because um, they're left with uh, concerns uh, that linger over uh, the information available to employees in this day and age, and to the extent that employers can, can leverage that information and inform the, uh, the workforce, um, you know, they still have the obstacle of getting those cards signed. So this appears to be a broader effort to make it uh, easier for the NLRB, um, you know, make it easier for unions to secure card signatures, and along with that, trying to uh, close down the information process that comes with captive meetings. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think the secret ballot process uh, is, is, does not favor unions because people can vote their conscience. And then if you reduce that, which is what Joy Silk, which we uh, have discussed on this podcast, uh, then employers can still educate people and, and have them not sign cards if they make an informed decision. I, yeah, I've handled probably seven different card check campaigns where all the union needed to do was get over 60% of the employees signed up. And per the private agreement that existed in that matter, they would have uh, uh, had to recognize the union. And the union never was able to do that because there was an educational effort that underwent, which I'm going to throw in another topic here, Steve. We keep hearing... Uh, and I, I know you're handling current organizing campaign activities, and I am too. We keep hearing about union busting. Uh, and Abruzio didn't say that this effort to restrict these captive audience meetings um, is eliminating union bustings. Well, what's your general impression when you hear the term 
union busting in reference to an employer's efforts to oppose unionization? Honestly, I think it's an artifact from another time and, and not at all descriptive of what uh, council do and what they bring to this process. And it's unfortunate, I think. Uh, maybe it's a broader reflection of how polarized we are. But you know, the reality is um, you can see here an effort underway to curtail meetings that, at least in my experience, are generally designed to improve the flow of information. Um, I've never considered that quote, busting a union. I've worked for unions. I've been on both sides of this. And um, I think a lot of us have seen the other side of this and might even go so far as to say that, you know, in certain workplaces, you know, they, they may at least have an argument of relevance, but that should never preclude an employer from exercising their free speech rights that, you know, have been basically protected for going on 75 years. But yeah, the term itself, um, I don't support it. I don't condone it. And I, more importantly, I just don't think it's an accurate reflection of the dy dynamic that takes place leading up to a secret ballot election. Yeah, yeah. I just think it's an easy tagline to throw on a company when they're using social media to you know, push back against the company. They disagree with the uh, effort to unionize. They disagree that a third party representation process makes sense. So that makes them a union buster. You know, it, 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 I've kind of thought about this. I, it, it would be just as unfair for employers to describe on a consistent and constant basis unionization efforts as company killers. You were union busting, you're a company killer. So obviously that's not appropriate. I'm not condoning that or I'm not saying companies should use that, but both those terms are just a way to categorize somebody that has a different position. All right, well, let's get back to more focus on the captive audience issue here. So just so everyone understands, Steve, what is the law today? Is this a problem we need to worry about uh, actually under the law today? Um, in my view, no. And you know, it's important to point out that you know the, the NLRB is an administrative agency, and so they're subject to the ebbs and flows that come with regime change in Washington. And that's led a lot of us to use the metaphor of a pendulum swing that happens every four or eight years with this agency. But the pendulum on this issue uh, has been in place for going on 75 years. Um, and so, you know, as we sit here today, uh, the law continues to protect the free speech rights of employers and their representatives. And that's been the case going back to 1947 when it was last amended to create what we call Section 8C and a year later uh, through uh, decision making and uh, continuously since that time. Uh, the concept of uh, inviting uh, employees into a session to share views and opinions on the subject of third party representation has been protected by law, uh, just as the unions have their protected right to share their views and opinions. And so you know, this really uh, was like a lightning bolt out of the blue in that it's, it's designed to upend over seven decades of law that have gone unchanged. Hey, I don't want to get too technical for our uh, listeners today, but, you know, uh, going back and thinking through what the NLRBGC explained to justify why these communication, these captive audience meetings should be legal, do you think there's a valid legal support for that position? No, I really don't. And, and just to get a little more granular on that, Mike, if you read the memo, and, and I guess just so we're all clear, we're here today talking about something that was generated by a memo issued by General Counsel Abruzza. 
um, as you pointed out. Um, but for that memo, um, I think we, we could still go to sleep at night knowing that our free speech rights were safeguarded. But the reality is um, that memo is premised on a number of assumptions that, in my view, at least aren't necessarily valid. And, and at its heart, it seems to be built around language within Section 7 of the Act, the so-called Bill of Rights of the NLRA, that, among other things, uh, guarantees employees not only the right to engage in protected concerted activity, including union organizing, but the right to refrain from that activity. And from that, she bootstraps it and, and makes this, this quantum leap that they also have the right uh, to refrain or avoid uh, participating in a meeting on company time to consider the employer's point of view. And I just don't see that um, baked into the statute that Congress first enacted back in 1935. And there's a host of other uh, false premises, in my view, that flow from that. But at its heart, to me, that's the fatal flaw. Yeah, yeah, I agree that the, the fundamental concept in a lot of these labor law decisions is that the employer, as long as they're acting lawfully, they're not intimidating, they're not threatening, they're not engaging in any kind of coercive actions, they have the ability to have you come into a meeting while you're still on pay during their work time, if that's what they want to do, and, and present information to you. Um, uh, from a practical standpoint, so the, the, I agree with you, I don't think the law supports this theory. Uh, but from a practical standpoint, do you even see this being an issue? No, and, and it's a good good point. You know, let's get away from the law and just talk about the dynamics of the workplace day to day, um, particularly in our experience. And you know, the, the the implicit assumption behind all of this is that employers compel employees to attend uh, meetings to be, I guess, indoctrinated on the subject of union representation. Um, and there's, an, there's some form of inherent coercion in that process itself because the implicit um, notion is that if they don't participate, they'll be subject to discipline or discharge. And that flies in the face of my own experience. Um, generally speaking, the employers with whom I've worked over the past three decades um, have, have stopped well short of, of even threatening, let alone acting, uh, on the notion of discipline for failure to attend a meeting to discuss this subject. There's so many other options available to those folks. And in my experience, inevitably, employers allow that option. Go back to work, perhaps. Take a break. There's a host of other options available. And um, consistently, in my experience, employers have recognized that. Yeah, yeah. well, my, I agree 100%. I've never, I, again, a lot of the things uh, I do as a labor lawyer uh, after doing this for 30 years, but starting it in the late 80s, uh, I was doing it because much older, wiser, experienced labor lawyers said do this. And, and I was always told if somebody said they didn't want to attend the meeting, don't make them attend the meeting. Say, okay, fine. Like I said, uh, you can stay out here and, and continue to do your job as long as you can safely work out here with everybody else in a meeting. I agree with that. And then my other experience has always been in the most intense, um, uh, you know, maybe publicly notable campaigns, the union organizers were front and center. They're the first ones in the meetings, sitting there on the front row. Back in the day, they were sitting there with their notepad. Uh, today, they're sitting there with their smartphone, uh, recording everything that is going on. So, um, well, so we've talked about the captive audience meetings and the GC's position that those are inherently legal. 
does the GC's memorandum of her effort that she did back in April, does it go beyond captive audience meetings? It does. Um, and it didn't have to. I suppose the memo could have stopped there. Um, and it would have been, I think, untenable for the reasons I mentioned as it is. But uh, it didn't stop there. It, it proceeds to address this murky uh, issue that she refers to as cornering, through which a, a supervisor, manager, perhaps encounters a, a subordinate employee in the hallway and proceeds to have a conversation, dialogue on the issue of third party representation, which could happen anytime, anywhere, with or without a union. Um, it is an issue um, out there. It's in the media, it's in the papers. People have discussions about this and they have a right to. And um, she seems to elevate that uh, to the concept of cornering and, and by doing so brings it into this broader umbrella of coercive meetings. And uh, because of that, um, the memo suggests uh, that those you know, conversations are covered to the point uh, that an employer has some form of affirmative obligation to assure the employee that participation in those day-to-day -day conversations is voluntary, which you know, just doesn't comport, uh, in my view, with the way the workplace operates day-to-day. -day. And of course, we'll, in many cases, it's very hard to trace how the the issue even emerged, but you could read the memo to suggest that if it's the employee who injects the issue in a discussion, some form of disclaimer still needs to be delivered. Right. Yeah. Well, again, from a very practical standpoint, and based on my personal experience, most of the conversations out on the work floor involve a supervisor or manager, if it's going to be initiated by the supervisor and manager saying, hey, there's been some information put out on this. Do you have any questions? And if the employee says, no, they don't, Supervisors and managers know, they're taught, they're trained. Well, thank you very much. And they move on. So there's nobody being cornered, nobody being coerced. And that's that's literally how it's 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 done. Um, okay, so let's go to get to the point uh, of what we hope people get out of these podcasts is what should manufacturing employers be doing now put themselves in the best position to deal with this issue, assuming the law stays up in the air in the near term and possibly has changed in the future. Well, there's a lot of ways to approach this depending on uh, your, your risk tolerance along that spectrum. And it's worth noting that while this isn't the law of the land yet, it's certainly a doctrine that's already being applied and enforced at the local level of the agency. And so those clients, particularly those who are more, more risk averse um, and uh, would prefer not to be a test case for this agency, which is usually I think, a wise approach, um, is uh, will be the clients that, you know, frankly, consider, if anything, stepping up their general day-to-day -day communications now so that when they do engage workers on issues as important as third-party representation, they're not seen as doing so out of the blue. They've already established a baseline for such communication. Um, and uh, you know, once they take that approach, I would encourage you know, any employer um, to uh, refrain from compelling and forcefully requiring employees to attend. And I think that's easy advice to take because as I said earlier, the vast majority of employers haven't been doing that and have no plans to do so. And assuming that's the case, um, it, to the extent that you're in a position to in, implement a process designed to establish that attendance is voluntary, perhaps disclaimer language on a sign-in sheet at a formal meeting, 
um, a reading some form of verbal disclaimer at the outset, assuring people of the obvious, which is that their participation is voluntary. And I suppose an extra layer of supervisory training um, would be uh, well-timed given this cornering concern that pops up in the memo. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess I've had six or seven uh, organizing campaigns. Our case is actually filed with the board and gone through that. And the ones that are the most easy and clean and uh, allow you to best respond to any complaints about the meetings are the ones where they do a sign-in sheet that says, this is a voluntary, we're trying to provide you information to make an informed decision. 100% voluntary, if you agree to the, the, the voluntarily participate sign. That, that, that's clean, that's easy, you turn that in when they file their objections to the ULPs and you're in the best possible position. Well, Steve, I think that's a, a good note to end it on. Uh, again, a lot of things happening. I will say just my personal perspective, I do feel that organized labor uh, seems to have this clock ticking right now. And they got like a two-year window where I think they're going to try to be as aggressive with some of these uh, tactics that are being offered. So I, I do think manufacturing employers and all employers should should you know, at least look at that and make their own evaluation. But I do think that that's out there. You have any thoughts on that? No, I think you've summed it up well. Um, this is an interesting time. Um, petitions are up approximately 60% over the same period a year ago. And uh, it's easy to latch on to a couple of employers that have been in the news lately. But there, there is something going on out there that's broader than this. And uh, I, I think perhaps it's fair to assume that at least part of the the environment that's driving it is knowing that the climate on a regulatory front is a little more favorable to unions than we've seen in a while. And so employers need to understand the times in which they're operating. Yeah, I agree. Well, Steve, thanks for sharing today. As always, whenever we've had our conversation on labor law, you've been a big benefit, a big help. Uh, so thanks for being part of Manufacturing Success and our podcast. We hope everybody uh, listening uh, found this conversation helpful and look forward to having you back again. Everybody have a great day. This podcast provides an overview of a specific developing situation. It is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal advice for any particular fact situation. Thank you.